I'd invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 this morning. And we're just going to look at verses 4 through 6, continuing on in our study of the book of Hebrews. I haven't been here for a week or two. We took a couple of breaks to cover some topics for things that kind of come up. But I'm happy to be back in the book of Hebrews. And hey, we're getting close to the end. We've, we've been here for quite a while. I hope it hasn't been too long for you. But we're getting close to the end, and we'll move on to another book of the Bible. But in Hebrews 13, we turned a corner from the rest of the book. The first 12 chapters were basically all about doctrine and theology, stuff you should know in your brain, in your head. Then in Hebrews 13, the last chapter, he turns that corner and says, now let's take all the stuff that you learned, the doctrine and the theology, and let's put it into use, put it into practice in your daily life. We could call Hebrews 13 a chapter on personal ethics as a Christian, how to live, how to not live, what to do, what not to do. But what I want us to think about in this chapter here, I want to link it all back to a specific idea. I want to read it to you real quick. Hebrews 12, verse 28, it said, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I want us to think about Hebrews 13 under that verse, and here's the idea I'm getting at. How do we show our gratitude to God for what he's done for us? Because that's what he says in 1228, let us be grateful for this kingdom that God has given for us to inherit in eternity. How do we show our gratitude, though? Because to be blunt, we cannot pay God back for what he's done for us. So how do we show our gratitude, though? Well, the other question he also said in verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship. And I told you that word worship is better thought of as service, acceptable service to God with your life on earth. So that answers this question. How do I show gratitude to God with my life and how do I offer acceptable sacrifices to him? Hebrews 13 is answering that to say something like this. It's about living your life for God, your your literal earthly daily life until you get to heaven. It's showing God you're grateful for the salvation he's given you by how you live your life for him and not the world. So that's where this gets practical. He's saying all this stuff should influence how you practically live your life on earth before you get to heaven. The choice is we can live for God or we can live for ourselves. If we choose to live for ourselves and do life our own way, what we're really saying to God is, God, I really don't care what you want. I only care about what I want. See, even someone could claim with their mouth, I'm a child of God, I've been born again, I believe in Christ. But if their life never changes in a measurable way, showing proof that they're living for Christ, they've been changed from the heart inside out. If that never happens, that is in fact what they're saying to God. I'm saying one thing, but God, I'm really going to live as if I'm very, very ungrateful and I don't care for what Jesus did for me. You could think of a child. I know my kids have been guilty of this. Maybe yours were too. You give them the birthday presents, they get them from you, from other relatives, the grandparents. They're given the present from you and they open it. They maybe even say thank you, but then immediately shove it to the side and like, where's my next one? Where's my next present? What does that say to you? Man, you're not being very grateful. That present cost me money. I spent my energy getting you that gift. And, And you're just ready for the next one and the next one? We deal with this with our boys. We get... There's Christmas, and then we get asked, when's my birthday? How many days to my birthday? I'm getting to where I say, I don't care about your birthday. It doesn't matter. 
But that's how it is. It's move on to the next thing. I'm ready for my next one. It shows a heart of no gratitude. The same idea, though, is for us as Christians. Jesus, thank you for saving my soul, yet I will not care to live for you, though. I'll not take practical actions with my life for God. That's ungratefulness. Shows a heart of no gratitude. Well, then, how do we show gratitude to God? The verses 1 through 3 in our last sermon, he said, it starts with showing love to God's family. It's otherly focused. Show unconditional love to the family of God. And if you do that, you're showing God, I'm grateful for what you've done. I'm going to live with gratitude. And I'm showing love to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ while on this earth. Today, now, we're going to talk about another one of these. How do I show gratitude to God? Here's what I want to call this today. Verses 4 through 6, he's going to say, well, we pursue personal holiness. So how do I live with gratitude to God? By pursuing personal holiness. He's going to lay out two categories for how you do that today. It's keep yourself holy and pure by basically being content and trusting the Lord to provide for you. The two categories we're going to talk about of how you pursue personal holiness, he's going to say, on the one hand, it's going to be sexual purity. And on the other hand, I'm going to call it material contentment. So how I am as a Christian on this earth before I'm in heaven, I show God I'm grateful for the salvation he's given me by pursuing personal holiness with my life, my daily life. And I want us to see he's saying it begins with sexual purity and material contentment. You could think of this message as teaching us how to live with personal integrity as a Christian. Sexual integrity. Integrity with our stuff, with our wealth. It's really about how do I have godly character before I get to heaven and show the world that there's a change in me. Well, let me look at these pass- this passage here and I'd invite you to stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read these three verses. It says in Hebrews 13, 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I invite you to bow with me for a moment in prayer. God, thank you for the treasured gift of your written word that we we gather together to hear from you through your written word. And we we try to structure all our things we do as a church around what your word says to us through the Bible. And I now ask, Lord, that you would, just as I say every Sunday, but I mean it, remove me out of the way, the human, just the, the human element of me. And God, would you just speak truth through your word this morning and bring all my, my studies and my thoughts to bear. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open hearts and ears to hear what they need to hear this morning from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So let's look at this then. How do we show gratitude to God? Well, the answer by being personally holy, pursuing personal holiness. Well, but what's the two ways we do that? The first category is sexual purity. That's what he's going to explain here. How do I pursue personal holiness? You can't be holy if you're not sexually pure. In Hebrews 13, 4, I'll read that again is where I'm getting this. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let me pause there. This This whole verse is really talking about this category that I'm presenting to you on sexual purity. That's what this deals with here. He begins by talking about sexual purity, though, with marriage first. So let's look at this. Now, in the Greek, this is interesting. The Greek this was written in. 
it actually doesn't read the way the English says. Our translators had to fill in some words because it doesn't make sense without them. This is how it literally would just read. It would just simply say, marriage honorable for all, or marriage honorable among all. Well, the question is, what does he mean by marriage honorable? How, do, how is he presenting that? If you read a King James Version or a New King James, it will say almost like a statement of fact. Marriage is honorable among all. And that's okay. That's fair and valid. But other English translations like mine and the one you have on the screen, you can notice it sounds as though he's giving a command. Let marriage be held in honor. And I want to take that view with you this morning. I want us to see it that way. I do believe that he's actually giving a command here. He's not just saying a statement of marriage is honorable. It is. He's actually declaring something to us. Marriage should be regarded as honorable among God's people, really among everyone. I'm getting this view because in the first three verses we've already looked at, there were clear commands. Let this happen. Do this. Pursue this. And then when we're done with this section and we pick up in our next section in our next sermon, it'll go back to commands. Do this and let this be that. So I don't think it makes sense that he would have just stopped giving a command here to say, let me just throw in this random statement that marriage is honorable. No, I believe, once again, this is a command we're to follow. So I want to read it the way that this one has it to say like this again. He is charging us to do something. And what he's charging us to do is to let marriage be regarded or held as honorable. So the command then is to honor marriage. Honor means to view it with exceptional value, to see that it's very costly, it's precious, or you could think of it as to highly, highly respect and regard the idea of marriage. So his charge then is, again, pursue personal holiness, be sexually pure. That starts with regard marriage in a certain way. How do I regard marriage? As honorable, as respectable, as highly, highly valuable. Among all, he says, I believe in the immediate context we're in, he meant among the family of God, we need to do this with one another, but it certainly most definitely means everyone in the church or out of the church, Christian or not, should regard marriage as an honorable thing. Why is it, though, it, it matters for the family of God? Because in the first three verses, he talked about loving one another in the family. And I think here he's saying, look, if you can't get marriage right, if you're not showing high regard for marriage with your own spouse as a Christian or other people's spouses, then you're not showing love to one another. If I'm not loving my spouse the way I should in God's eyes, then how can I love my fellow brothers and sisters the way I should as well? I think that's how he's connecting them. If you love the family of God, then regard marriage as honorable and respectful as well. How do we honor marriage as Christians, though? Well, in the first big way we honor marriage as Christians is we see marriage the way God sees marriage. God created the idea of marriage. It's his thing, not our thing. Sure, we have made laws about marriage or we've made certificates and things, and that's fine. But originally, it all comes from God. It's his idea. It's his concept. Genesis 2, you'll find that Adam was alone there. God said it's not good for man to be alone. And what's interesting about that is Genesis 3 is when sin came into the world. And we would say sin is not good. But then before sin in Genesis chapter 2, so, before, so chronologically in the order of events, before sin came in, 
Adam was alone, and you have where God said something is not good. Now, that didn't mean sinful. It meant not complete, not the way it's yet meant to be. So before sin, God came up with this concept, this idea of I'm going to join together a man and a woman in marriage together. And the event reads that the rib that the Lord God took from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So why did God create marriage? He didn't want mankind to be alone. He created the woman, the wife, as his perfect fitting helpmate. God said it's not good that Adam be alone. I mean, just as simple as that. Life is better lived with that lifelong partnership between the man and the woman. But the other reason is God wanted the earth populated. He said, go fill the earth, have children. But he said, but I want that to be done through the idea of marriage. Marriage is the mechanism that God created for the man and woman to come together in union for life and said from that they will have more children and then the earth will populate. The man and woman are image bearers of God. They're to marry together, unite together and produce more image bearers of God that will serve him on into the future. Now, their society and our own has definitely, I don't have to prove this to you, but the idea of marriage has been definitely perverted and it's not new for us. It was in their day very much perverted as well. That's why he had to say this. So you have to ask yourself, why is he saying this? Because they had the same problems we have. In fact, a lot of problems of societies are not new. They're just repeated over and over. They had the same issues. They had people defiling marriage, people viewing marriage as something not honorable. Marriage is something to not be pursued or once within marriage, just completely messed up with how to treat your spouse. The definition of marriage has certainly been turned upside down. Our societies really dishonor marriage. How they dishonor marriage is they take it away from God. We'll still have marriage in our societies, but God's removed. It's no longer the way he wanted marriage to be. But Christians honor marriage by living in marriage God's way, respecting and viewing marriage the way God intended, not letting the world define marriage or, or do away with God's idea of marriage for us. Because look, he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So this is another implied command. Honor marriage, let marriage be held as high and with honor. Now he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. It's another command here. So now he says, within a marriage, and only within a marriage, is sexual activity authorized by God. That that is a euphemism they had for when he says the marriage bed. That was the euphemism, the picture for when the union between a man and a woman the sexually united together. So he's now saying, let's get more personal about this. Honor marriage and regard marriage as something respectable and highly valued, but within sexual activity, it is preserved for only within the marriage. Once married, the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled, he says. That means no sin, no immorality. It's to be kept pure and holy and honorable. It's to be done the way God intended for it to be, is also his idea. Sexual activity within marriage, he says, is pure and clean, he says. On the other hand, the marriage bed needs to be preserved that way. This is the other way marriage is honored. Once married, sexual activity is kept between husband and wife. 
He says, within that, it's okay. That's what God meant for it to be. But to go outside of that is to defile it and make it unclean. It's, it's a defilement of the marriage and the marriage bed. So he says, how do we pursue holiness and to be sexually pure? Well, it begins with our view of marriage, honoring it, respecting it for the way God meant it to be. We seek to keep our marriages, once we're in them, sexually pure and clean and not defiled. Now, he makes the case even stronger, though. Is he only talking about married people? No, look at the next phrase in the verse here. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for or because here God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now he kind of seals the case and says this applies to everybody, single, married, everybody. What do I mean? Because when he uses this phrase sexually immoral, that is a Greek word. It sounds like pornos. You may hear in that where our society has the idea of pornography. That's where this comes from. The word pornos was their catch-all term for any form of sexual activity that was outside of the marriage covenant. So basically, think of it like this. In the Bible, you will not find a comprehensive list of all the things you should not do sexually. You won't find that. Rather, what you find is the only way you should engage in sexual activity. God sort of tells you the standard. He holds it high. This is the standard marriage between man and a woman. And only within that covenant arrangement can there be sexual activity. That means then this word was saying anything else outside of that and that alone is considered pornos, sexual immorality. So he didn't have to give a list of, well, is this okay or is that okay? That's not the question. The question is just, what does God say to do inside a marriage? Well, you can have sexual activity. Does he say anywhere else? No, just within a marriage. So everything else outside of that marriage union, he says here, is sexual immorality. He calls it the sexually immoral. He's talking about a kind of people. The sexually immoral people God will judge. Again, the ones who engage in sexual activity outside of the marriage union fall into this category of any sort, of any kind. And I want to stress another point. It's any type of sexual activity outside of the marriage bed or the marriage union here, we would say. But I want to stress between husband and wife. Because our societies, unfortunately, have also twisted the definition of marriage to say, well, it could be a man with a man or a woman with a woman. But then that begs the question, but is that how God intended marriage? No. Man, woman, together, for life. That's marriage. That, that's the standard God holds high. Anything else that comes off of that and perverts that and distorts that falls under this category that's sexual immorality. So even if you had a society that said, well, legally we affirm this thing as valid, that's not how we judge right and wrong, is it? There's been things in our society in the past that were legally okay, but we're not morally okay. Remember in our nation's history, slavery used to be legal. Doesn't mean it was morally right, does it? It just means at that time it was legally acceptable. Just because something is legally accepted when it comes to the ideas of marriage does not mean it's morally acceptable to God. And that's what he's stressing here. Outside of that definition as bound up in creation itself, man and woman, United together, outside of that, it is sexual immorality. And he says God will judge that. 
So honoring marriage means everyone, married or not, must be sexually pure. The single person says, I will wait for sexual activities until I'm married. That's how I pursue my personal holiness. The married person says, I will only have sexual activities with my spouse within my marriage. That's how they pursue sexual purity. Well, again, as Christians, we pursue holiness by being sexually pure. We view marriage God's way. We view sexual activity as reserved only between the husband and the wife in the marriage. And again, I stress anything out of that is a perversion and considered immorality in God's eyes. But he kind of makes it even more secure with this next word. He says also the adulterers. So the sexually immoral is anybody and everybody outside of a marriage engaged in any kind of sexual activity. He says that's sexual immorality in God's eyes. And then he says, but what about inside of a marriage? Can you be sexually immoral if you're married? He says, oh, absolutely. That's the next word he uses, adulterers. You know what that word means. It's when a spouse engages in sexual activities with someone other than their spouse. We may call it you know, having an affair. There's different terms. But he covers all of his bases to say, outside of a marriage, be sexually pure. How? By not engaging in sexual immorality. That's reserved for in the marriage. Once inside the marriage, be sexually pure. How? By not committing adultery. Be faithful to the spouse. The dangers here, if this is not followed, he gives a very sharp warning. It's a statement of a future event with certainty. God will judge those people who the sexually immoral and the adulterers. God will judge, not maybe, not he's thinking about it. He will judge. And that word judge is interesting. It literally is their term for like a legal judge sitting on a bench. He uses that a lot in this book. If you've not noticed, God is like a cosmic judge sitting on a, a bench as a judge rendering legal verdicts. That's this word. God will render a verdict on these people. It's not going to be a favorable one is his idea. Not only eternal judgment, but think of physically. I mean, there's practical benefit to following his ethics here. If someone is straying outside of what he's arguing for, which is to be sexually pure by saving all of that for only within the marriage union, the covenant, there's a lot of physical problems here. I don't need to go into all of that, but you're very much well aware of how rampant sexually transmitted diseases are. That's a form of God's physical judgment in this life on this type of immorality. There could be physical judgment for it and eternal judgment for it. The point I want to stress is he's making it clear no one will escape this. You can't live your life sexually impure, doing whatever you want, and then claim with your mouth, but I'm a Christian the two don't go together, is his idea. A person can't do that for life. If a person claims to be a child of God, but has a lifestyle marked of sexual immorality or adultery, the argument would go, their words are empty. They can say it all they want. It doesn't mean anything. The faith has to be proven by actions that back up the faith you claim to have. Now, we're not saved by our works. We know that. But the Bible is clear, faith is first, then the works of faith will follow. If someone says they have faith and no works of faith follow, then you can't really say they have faith at all. It's just words they're saying. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I don't care to live for Jesus. That's an oxymoron. Now, Christians will fall into sins. Yes, hear me clearly, we're not perfect. But we're talking lifestyle. We're talking mentality here. 
he's really arguing for Christians to say, look, this is the goal. You have to pursue these things. If you don't even care to pursue them, then it shows our hearts may not really be with Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now he gives a list. Who are the unrighteous? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, that's the same word, pornos, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So that's God's standard, and you deviate from it, you're sexually impure. Christians pursue holiness with our sexual purity before marriage and when married. We show the world God's standards, and we call, up, we call the world up to God's standards. We don't go down to the world's low standards. Now, I want to stress this before people are left in the pit. A person can be forgiven, though. He says God will judge, but God also says, I will give grace. I will forgive anyone and everyone who truly, truly repents and strives for holiness with a heart of faith. So a person can be forgiven if they truly confess, repent, and strive for holiness in their purity. We're talking about the people who say it, but then their life never changes. It never backs it up. He says, listen, you can fall into these sins. You can have a past of these sins and God's grace can forgive that. It's anyone. You cannot out God's grace. But again, it's about have they truly confessed and repented and agreed that those are sins and want to live in God's standard of holiness. So that's the first way we pursue personal holiness, sexual purity in the marriage and out of the marriage, promoting God's standards, living God's standards. The next way we pursue personal holiness, I'm going to call this material contentment. In verse 5, it reads, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is just like verse 4. We have to fill in the words. It literally just reads, Your way of life free from love of money. So the question is, what did he really mean here? Well, he meant it as an implied command to follow. Let your life be kept free from the love of money. See to it that your life is kept free from the love of money. The word life means not your physical, biological life. It's your manner of life, your pursuits, your goals, what you're all about getting in life is what he means by your manner of life. Keep it free from what? The love of money. You may have heard the Greek word agape. It has a sister word called philo, philos. That's this word used here. It means like brotherly, sisterly love, a deep, affectionate love for something. And he uses that word to talk about a love for someone else to say the love for a thing. Money, wealth, stuff, material possessions. It says don't let your life be all about the love of money. Don't love it. So that's the command. Don't love wealth. Or you could say material stuff. The, the point is here, I want to stress too, money and material things are not bad. Those things are not sinful in and of themselves. That's not what he's saying. There's plenty of rich people in the Bible. The problem is not being rich. The problem is 1 Timothy 6.10. Paul says, for the love, that's the key, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows or pangs. The, the problem is not having wealth and stuff. The problem is the love of those things. By love, again, we're talking here, 
when someone makes their, their life's pursuits about growing in that wealth, having more of that stuff before they die, just being richer and richer and more prosperous, having the things you wish you, you could have, making your life about, I wish I had these things, you know, these vehicles, these things, this size house, I wish I had that. Well, well, one day I will if I go pursue this career and do that, then I'll be there. That's what he's driving at. It's this, when your whole life's pursuit is wealth and stuff. So the solution, he says, be content with what you have presently today. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Be satisfied. Think of what you have now as it's enough. God's given it to me. It's enough. It's all I need. Human nature in us, though, says I need more. That's human nature. We all battle it. We'll battle it as Christians. Again, that's why he put this in here. Remember, he's writing to Christians. Hey, Christians, don't make your life all about the pursuit of wealth and things. What do I make it about? Being content in God and what he's provided you. But it's hard. Human nature in us is, but if I have a career and I make 60000 what if I can make 80000 What if I can make 100000 And on and on it goes. I knew a guy from one of the first churches I served on staff at years ago. He, was, uh, he owned like three mechanic shops or something like that. And he sold them all and he cashed them in. He literally walked into church to me and the senior pastor and he said, Well, guys, today I'm officially a millionaire. And the pastor, not me, asked him back, well, how does it feel? And he seriously just said, you know what? It doesn't make a difference. He said, I thought it would be great to be a millionaire. And he said, it doesn't matter. I mean, he realized it's just money. I'm going to die and leave it to someone else. Sure, it's great to have money. And rather than not, we all want to at least have the necessities, right? But he was explaining to us what he'd realized now. The pursuit of that, though, it's empty. It leads you with the same emptiness you started with. This happens in all areas of life. A long time ago, I was at the gym working out, and a guy at the gym said something that I've never forgotten. We were lifting weights and you know, pushing ourselves. I think we were bench pressing. And he, he just simply said, it's never enough, is it? I said, what do you mean it's never enough? He said, it's never enough for us. You lift 300 pounds, Say, man, I've never lifted 300, that's cool, but it's never enough. No, I need to train and lift 320. It's never enough. I need 350. I need 400. And I thought that carries into every area of life. I have this much money. Oh, but it's not enough. What if I had more? Earn $100,000, you'll need 200000 Be able to do this with your life, it's, you'll get there. And, well, now what's next? That's his idea. He's stressing, be content with where you are and what you have. Don't keep making your entire life's purpose about the next thing, the more money, the more stuff. Being content means trusting God provides what we need. Being satisfied in God, not stuff and wealth. That's why I think he's put these two ideas together in verses 4 and 5. Sexual immorality and now being content. Because I think there's a common theme here that ties these together. It's really all about lust and greed. You see, when we want something very deeply, we lust after it. Lust isn't just sexually, it's anything. Anything you really want, you want it so bad, that's a lust for that thing. If we're lusting and seeking that thing rather than focusing on God, it will lead us to then start taking actions with our lives to actually have that thing or that person. That's what our life becomes about. Then, 
The reason we do that is we're not satisfied in God. We, we, we think that we'll be really satisfied in the other person or the thing or the amount of wealth. We think once I get that, check that box off, then I'll be happy and fulfilled and satisfied. That shows, though, we would have a lack of contentment in God. The Jews had this idea. It was almost like a math formula. They said when you start lusting, that leads to greed. Then greed leads to idolatry. Meaning, when you lust and want things you don't have and think that if I just make my life about getting those things, it actually starts to hurt your spiritual walk with the Lord. It impacts you spiritually. Even though we don't think it does, it certainly does. Because, again, lust leads to greed and greed leads to idolatry. What that's doing is saying, God, I'm not really going to be about you. I'm about me and my wants and my desires. So I'm going to spend my life and my energy pursuing all those things that I want. But he says the remedy to that is be content in God. Be focused on what God wants and what he's provided you. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, same word, pornos, or impure, but notice Paul adds, who is covetous, greedy for stuff and wealth. He says, they're an idolater. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting that Paul links all these together. The sexually immoral, the impure, the greedy and the covetousness, Paul says, they're really an idolater. Idolatry is when you pursue and worship other things or yourself rather than God. He says, that's what they're doing. Paul puts them together. Well, it takes a mindset change to be content. What's our mindset? It's that God will provide. Trust that God will provide. Depend on God. Seek God, not the stuff of the world. And God will provide our needs. Matthew six nineteen, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Or excuse me, treasures on earth. You should lay up treasures in heaven. Misspoke there. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is the key right there in verse 21 of what Hebrews is talking about. Having stuff and money is not bad. It's the pursuit of those things because what that means is that's what you treasure in life. And Jesus said what you treasure is where your heart is. Don't let money and stuff have your heart. Let God have your heart. Pursue God, and God takes care of those other things on the way. Let me skip to Matthew six twenty-five. Jesus said another idea about this. He said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap. They don't grow crops, he's saying, and put into barns. Yet God feeds them. Are you not of more value than the birds? Well, it's a rhetorical question. Of course you are. You're a person. And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the grass of the field, the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil nor spin, meaning they don't make clothes for themselves, but they are more beautiful than Solomon's riches in, in the temple. Look at verse 30, though. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, the remedy, Jesus said, is don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? He says, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, all that stuff will be added to you. 
God will work it out. God will take care of it. Don't pursue the stuff. Pursue the God over the stuff. And he'll give you the stuff. Just pursue the Lord. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This makes sense to us, right? If you're stressing about the future and stuff you want to get next year and whatever, Jesus says, look, you've got enough problems today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Take care of today and serve God today. 1 Timothy 6, 7, another reason it's futile to pursue things. Paul says, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. What you earn and gain in this life, you'll leave it to someone else who didn't work hard for it like you did. They'll just take it. And you'll have no control over what they do with it. It's theirs, you're gone. So again, the stuff's not bad, but the love of the stuff, the love of the wealth is what he is saying is the issue. I want to again make a point here so I don't confuse anyone or lead us in the wrong way. I don't for a second believe he's speaking against bettering yourself. Let's say someone says, well, should I go to college or not? I have an opportunity to go to college. I can earn a degree. That degree will then gain me a career field that I'm passionate about, on and on. I would say he is not at all talking about those things. Yes, better yourself as God opens those doors. If you're at a position of work and maybe they offer you better pay, different position, they absolutely, if that, if that will help you still serve the Lord and it betters your family and your situation, go for it. Absolutely. He's not saying that it's wrong to better yourself. What he's getting at is motive and desire. The difference is, well, if I go into this certain career, I can make so much money, then I can have this stuff, and that's the wrong mentality. But rather, it's, I think God has gifted me for this type of career. God's opened a door for it. I can serve the Lord in that career. That's the different mentality. Then along the way, God will provide my needs. There's a promise from God he ends with in verse 5. The end of it, he says, how can we be content in the Lord? By trusting God. And he quotes God as giving a promise here in 13.5. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God has given us a promise that he will take care of your needs. He will not abandon you. And I love this in the Greek language it was written in. When you read in verse 5, I will never leave you, it's actually called a double negative. It's never, never leave you. Then when you read nor forsake you, it's a triple negative. I will never, never, never forsake you. He's really emphasizing here. God was clear. I will not abandon my children. I won't leave them out there with no resources. So it begins with I'm content with God and I'm going to trust God that he'll do what he said for me, and I'll just serve him, and along the way, he's taking care of me. So how do we show gratitude to God? We pursue personal holiness by being sexually pure in marriage and out of marriage. We also pursue contentment with our wealth and our stuff by trusting in God to provide and seeking to serve him and not serve getting things in this life. We do things God's way. It begins with, though, are, are we holy, first of all, through Jesus Christ? That is where holiness starts. Not by doing things and then God likes me. It's being born again through Jesus Christ. Then I'm declared holy through Christ. He's forgiven me my sins through my faith in him. I'm a holy child of God. Now we go live this stuff as the holy people of God. I'll ask Bruce and his team to come as I'll pray for us. As I pray, that's my charge to us this morning.
to ask God to reveal to us, am I pursuing personal holiness as my goal in life rather than the stuff of the world? Am I living with sexual purity that lives up to God's standards in or out of marriage? And am I making God the focus of my desires, not wealth and stuff? Join me in prayer, please. God, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus, and for giving us salvation. But Lord, thank you for giving us a new heart, making us born again to live a different ethic for you. And God, would we, would we be convicted and empowered to live the things Hebrews tells us to do, to pursue personal holiness? But also, Lord, would we use these as a tool to be a witness to the lost world that not that we're better than them, but we're different than them so that we can help them see their need for Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.